In 2014, the internet dating site Christian Mingle did a survey. It polled unmarried Christians between the ages of 18 and 59. And they were asked a very straightforward question. Would you have sex before marriage? Here's the response. A whopping 63% said yes. An article commented on this survey. It said when it comes to sex, most Christian singles are no different than atheists. They act as if God has nothing meaningful to say about their sexual practices. It's the ultimate oxymoron, really. Why would people who believe that God created all of life and knows best how it should be lived not seek His wisdom regarding their most intimate and most potentially fulfilling experience? The article goes on to coin a term for the 63% of Christian singles, sexual atheists. And that phrase also described the Christians in Corinth. No, these Corinthians, they were Christians. Their faith was real. In fact, if you remember back in verse 11, Paul told them, you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Unpack those terms and their condition was hopeful. God's Spirit had cleansed their conscience, made them His own, even put them on good terms, right terms with God. The problem, though, is that they weren't living up to their calling, especially when it came to their attitude towards sex. The phrase sexual atheist is not a flattering term. It was coined to convict Christians who ignore God's wisdom on sex. Whereas the Corinthians were coining phrases to justify their pagan approach to sexuality. And in these last nine verses of chapter 6, Paul plays off of several sayings that the Corinthians were using to rationalize their promiscuous behavior. He quotes three mottos or three platitudes that were circulating around the church. The first you'll find in verse 12. They were saying, all things are lawful. The second is in verse 13. They would say, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. And then the third platitude is in verse 18. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. Now We don't know if the Corinthians had developed these sayings themselves or if they were just using slogans from the pop culture. But Paul, in this passage, reveals their twisted logic. He plays off these Corinthian platitudes to debunk their foolishness and to explain the Christian view of sex. The Corinthians thought they were so smart. They had answers for everything. In their minds, they had justified their immorality. In chapter 6, Paul sets them straight. Paul begins in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now realize, this is an enormous verse. This is gigantic. You can't overemphasize, you can't overexaggerate this, its importance. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, you could call the Mount Everest of ethics. 
The Jews have their Ten Commandments. The Muslims have their five laws. Yet here in this single verse, Paul lays out the Christian ethic. Here are the Christian's lists of do's and don'ts. Here's the moral code by which Christians, all Christians, in all eras and in all cultures are to live by. Paul writes in verse 12, All things are lawful for me. What? All things are lawful? What kind of loose, lax, permissive, slack code of behavior is that? You see, the critic who accuses Christianity of being too stringent, too repressive, too legalistic, hasn't read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. There are no taboos. Anything goes. You can't get any freer than all things are lawful. Understand, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Pharisee. That means he was of the strictest sect. Before coming to Christ, he had been a staunch legalist. It was do's and don'ts, rules and regs. He'd followed the letter of the law to the nth degree. Yet it didn't make him righteous. Oh, self-righteous for sure. But not righteous enough to be pleasing to God. And yet now in Christ, he had been freed from the law. It was no longer what Paul could do, it's what Christ had done. Through faith, Paul had received Christ's righteousness. And this is true of every Christian. We are saved and we grow spiritually by faith, not works. By grace, not law. By the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. Paul had his fill of legalism. He now saw it as an obstacle. It inflamed his pride. It filled his heart with hate. Legalism was the enemy. And he was not going to allow Christianity to be pulled a single inch in that direction. On top of his own experiences, there were people in the first century who leaned toward asceticism and legalism. They said, oh, the more you deprive yourself legitimate pleasures, the closer you'll get to God. Paul had nothing to do with that kind of logic. He confronts these false teachers in the New Testament. He warns in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 of folks who come forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He would have nothing to do with that kind of legalism. The last thing Paul wanted to do was for the legalist to get his mitts on Christianity and to turn it into another law. Verse 12 makes it clear. Christians are not governed by law. But that doesn't mean we're not governed. That nothing limits or directs our behavior. That would be ludicrous. That would be disaster. Anarchy is not a good idea. You see, under the law, we were like a dog on a leash. You might think it's cruel to keep your dog always on a leash. You might want to relax the leash, even remove the leash. And that's a nice idea. But first, you would need to train your dog. Domesticate, curb its animalistic nature. Send the dog to obedience school before removing the leash. And this is what God has done with us. Yes, he removes the leash of legalism, but only after he enrolls us in the Holy Spirit school of obedience. A Christian is governed, but by love, not rules. By the Spirit of God, not the letter of the law. 
Here's how Christianity works. Rather than assign us new rules, God sends His Spirit to rule over our hearts. He changes. He guides us from the inside out. God gives us a new nature that replaces that old sin nature, a new nature that now wants to obey God and love others. And so now, when a Christian makes moral and ethical choices, the real question isn't, is it lawful, but is it helpful? Is this going to help me grow in this relationship I have with God and His Spirit? Keep reading in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Now here's my first concern. Will this activity deepen my love for Christ and will it benefit my neighbor? The decision-making filter that governs a Christian is no longer a set of rules, but now love. Like a leash on a wild dog, the law was made to choke and stop. Christianity no longer needs the leash because it transforms the wild dog into a child of God. Our first concern should be to love others and to glorify God. The question now is not, is it lawful? Can I get away with it? Can I do this and still go to heaven? It's more positive. Does this help me to love you and to glorify God? And there is a second concern. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And this is also part of the Christian ethic. If the goal is to be ruled by Christ, not law, then I need to avoid anything that might rival His rule in my life. If Jesus died to set me free, then a priority for me is to stay free. To avoid anything that might rob me of my freedom and impose on me another kind of bondage. You see, a Christian serves but one master. This means he or she will steer clear of anything or any activity that has the potential of mastering their life. See, I'm not free to put it down if I'm not free to pick it up. I didn't say that right, did I? If I'm not free to put it down, I'm not free to pick it up. That's what I should have said. It becomes a sin to me if I can't set it down and leave it alone. Alcohol is the classic example. A Christian's free to drink a glass of wine as long as they're free to stop at one glass. But if I have a physical dependence, if I have a propensity to be addicted to alcohol and to drink too much, then it becomes a sin for me to take a single sip. You see, all things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The same is true for video games, for food, for friends, for sports. If I can't put it down, then I sin to pick it up. Here's the only rule for the Christian. Do what you want as long as it's helpful and it doesn't bring you under its power. If it doesn't cause you to fumble away your faith, it doesn't cause your neighbor's faith to stumble. And so the Christian isn't governed by law. He or she is governed by love. Love for God and love for others. And this also applies to sexual ethics. Sex is not about gratifying whatever I desire. Sex, too, is about glorifying God and loving other people. You see, there was another slogan the Corinthians adopted to justify their pagan attitudes towards sex. 
Paul quotes it in verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now here's the idea. Food is nothing but fuel. What you eat feeds your stomach until the stomach needs more. Then it gets fed again. It's just a biological chain reaction that's eventually brought to a screeching halt by death. Now certainly there is some value in choosing nutritional foods to eat. I'm thinking a steady diet of red meat and cigars is probably not going to be good for you. It's probably not going to be your healthiest choice. In the long run, it's going to close your arteries and poison your lungs. But here's Paul's point. The healthy-looking corpse in one casket and the sickly-looking corpse in the other casket have one thing in common. They're both dead. In the long run, it didn't matter what they ate. They're both dead. One is no better than the other. The slogan the Corinthians were quoting... Foods for the stomach and the stomachs for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. It conveyed this vital truth. It's not what you put into your mouth that matters most to God. The ancient world was full of dietary and ascetic restrictions. There were pagans and Jews and even some Christians who made a big deal about abstaining from legitimate pleasures. Sex and marriage, or kosher diets, or special days of observance and feast, all these things were a part of their religion. But the Corinthians were right in exercising their liberty to eat and drink as they pleased. Feasting or fasting, kosher or non-kosher, cholesterol or non-cholesterol, holy day or every day, had zero impact on a person's eternal destiny and their fellowship with God. But the Corinthians had mistakenly adopted the same perspective towards sex. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. See, here was their attitude. My stomach craves food, so I eat. Well, my body craves sex, so I just do it. They assume that humans are just highly involved animals following their natural cravings. The Corinthians held to the modern mantra, if it feels good... Do it. You see, the Corinthian logic is like that of people today. I've got a hunger drive. I've got a thirst drive. I've got a sleep drive. I've got a sex drive. So if it's not a sin to eat anything I want or drink anything I want or sleep anytime I want, then it must not matter to God if I have sex whenever I want and with whomever I want. Sex is nothing but a biological function like eating or sleeping or even defecating. That's faulty thinking, but that was Corinthian thinking. And in the remainder of chapter 6, Paul straightens out their logic. He begins in verse 13. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. First note that the Greek word used for body, it refers to the body as a whole, not just the stomach. Not just the heart, not just the organs or glands or cells, but the entire package. Your body, your soul, your mind, your emotions, your spirit, all that makes you human. When man is seen as nothing but a stomach, just a machine motivated by cause and effect, or as an animal operating by instinct with no morality or conscience, a cardinal truth has been overlooked. 
Men and women were made in God's likeness. Yes, we've been marred by sin. But in the beginning, we were made in God's image and we still bear His image today. We have a soul, a spirit. We have a free will. We make choices. We're self-determining. We're moral creatures with a sense of right and wrong. We're more than machine or animal. We are image bearers of God. This makes us a big deal. This makes your body a big deal. See, man is not just a giant stomach. There's more to you than a stomach and and what gets put inside that stomach. God created all there is in six days. And he said that it was good. But he saved his final stroke of genius for his prized work. Man was the cap and crown of God's creation. The one aspect that was made in God's image. And God gave to humankind dominion over all his creation. We were made to know God and rule with God. We are more than stomachs. We're more than consuming machines. We're holy creatures made to know God and glorify God and rule with God. And as if that were not enough, as if that were not a high enough view of mankind in our bodies. Read verse 14. He says, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Yes, the man was made in God's image, but he fell from his former glory. But God will raise him up again, just as God did Jesus. Your body not only reflects the genius of your creator, but it will be the canvas on which he works his greatest masterpiece, the resurrection. The Bible teaches that our rotting flesh will one day be clothed in glory, that we will have a resurrected body. Now here's Paul's point. God created your body. He's going to make it, he's going to raise it up again in his power. That makes the human body something very special to God. That's why our bodies are not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. It's true. The Lord isn't all that interested in what you put into your body. I mean, the stomach and what you feed it is temporary. You can take care of your body and live to be 100, or you can exist off potato chips and drop dead at 40. That's really not God's chief concern. He's going to resurrect and perfect your body one day anyway. It's not what you put in your body that matters to God as much as what you do with your body while you're here on earth. How you use your body in this life is what counts to God. Now Paul writes in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The Corinthians were saying, we can do with our bodies whatever we want. It doesn't matter. Paul says, not so fast. Your body is the body of Christ. We're members of Christ, literally. We're his limbs. As John Phillips puts it, our hands are to be his hands. Our feet are to be his feet. Our tongue is to be his tongue. If a sick person's pillow needs to be fluffed, or someone's brow to be bathed, he has no hands but our hands. If some distant tribe needs to be reached, he has no feet but our feet to go. 
And if he is to use my body as his body, then it must be kept pure. And if your body is literally the appendages of Christ, Paul asks, Shall I then make the members of Christ, or take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. See, this is what happens in sex. Two bodies don't just bounce all around and off of each other and play twister. Something spiritual occurs in that interaction. Paul writes, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. There is a oneness, an intimacy, a merging that happens in sex. A deep and lingering connectedness occurs when a man and a woman engage sexually. It parallels to what happens in the spiritual realm when we come to Christ. As Paul puts it, the two shall become one flesh. Unlike eating and drinking and sleeping, sex among humans carries deep, intense spiritual connotations. It's not like two dogs in heat, just two bodies going at it. Human sexuality isn't just a physical interaction. Sex speaks of eternal relationships. It impacts us on the deepest level. Sex isn't just another bodily function. It is a spiritual act as well as it is a physical act. And it impacts us profoundly and deeply to the very core of our being. One author writes, Something happens in sex that is far deeper than your feelings might ever recognize. Even after the most casual and passing sexual encounter, when the man and woman meet afterwards, there is a change. There's a deep sense of having shared a mystery together, an intimacy that can never be erased. Even though it was meant to be a one-night stand, there remains an indelible stamp on the soul. Here's a simpler way to say it. There is no such thing as casual sex. Sex is anything but casual. The word Paul uses for sex is joined. The Greek word means glued. I like to think of sex as super glue. Sex creates a permanent, unbreakable bond between two people. You see, try and pull something apart after it's been super glued, and it doesn't separate as easily as it was joined. In fact, there's a ripping, there's a tearing after the super glue's been applied. Not just at the point where the two bodies once touched, but the tearing is severe. It now goes further and wider and deeper. It's more violent. And this is what happens with sex. It doesn't just interlock two bodies. Whether you realize it or not, it fuses together two souls, two spirits. This is why God reserves sex for marriage. You want a marriage to be sealed tightly. But when sex occurs before marriage or outside of marriage, and the two then want to untangle, it's not without great damage. This is why living together is not a good idea. Though it's become the thing to do in our culture, the results are disappointing, often tragic. Studies show that, cult- that couples who cohabit report lower levels of satisfaction in their relationship than married couples. There's more unhappiness, even more domestic violence. 
And if the couple does marry in the future, studies show that they're more likely to divorce after living together. Here's why this happens. Living together is often compared to a test drive. You ever heard this? I mean, you don't buy a car without a road test. So why would you marry a person without trying them ahead of time? Trying them out. Well, that's fine if you're the buyer. But how does that feel if you're the car? As you're being tested, you're giving yourself to this person. You're bonding with them. You're becoming one with them. But you're giving your soul without assurances. This is an unconditional love. You're under the pressure to perform. It's a test. It's about their happiness. It's still about their satisfaction. At any moment, you could be dropped back off at the dealer. This is why God reserves sex for marriage. Only where there's a permanent commitment is it safe to squirt the superglue and unleash that powerful bond. Francis DeVos once wrote, There is a tendency to think of sex as something degrading. It is not. It is magnificent, an enormous privilege. But because of that, the rules are tremendously strict and severe. Remember Paul's words, Your bodies are members of Christ. We are the body of Christ. So let's be careful how we use His body and with whom we link His body. Don't prostitute your fidelity and loyalty to Christ for a few cheap thrills and a passing moment of pleasure. Prostitution was rampant in Corinth. Some of the Corinthian Christians didn't see the crime in continuing to visit prostitutes. Paul is saying, isn't it repulsive to you to think of joining the body of Christ to a harlot? It should be. What about when a believer logs on to a pornographic website? Do you know that you're connecting the body of Christ to that website? Doesn't that upset you? Or for a Christian to climb into bed with another man's wife, you've just pulled the sheets over the body of Christ. If a believer walks into a strip club, the body of Christ has now been subjected to the seedy and the shameful. When two Christian singles have sex, they prostitute the body of Christ. They distort the picture of his devotion to his church for their own self-gratification. Participate in sex outside of marriage. And you don't just risk rejection or STDs or AIDS or an unwanted pregnancy. More importantly... You violate and betray the spiritual union between you and your Lord Jesus. As Paul writes, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. So why would you connect Christ to a prostitute? Once a teenager asked his grandpa, Gramps, your generation didn't have all these venereal diseases. What did you wear to have safe sex? Old Gramps answered him, Son, we wore a wedding ring. And that's what God is saying to us in this text. You don't have to worry about safe sex if you save sex for marriage. And this is why Paul exhorts us in verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Notice he doesn't say, take a strong stand against sexual immorality. Nor does he say, face and fight off sexual immorality. No, Paul is much more realistic. He says, flee it. The word means continually flee. 
Here's how to deal with sexual temptation. Don't sit there and fight. Just split from there and take flight. Today we live in a sex-saturated, sex-obsessed society. Temptation is everywhere and easily accessible. But Paul knows that our biggest problem is not our environment. It is us. My flesh is feeble. It is prone to temptation. Thus the solution for me is to remove myself from the temptation. Flee sexual immorality. Here's what I've always taught my teenagers. Of course, it applies to adults as well. It applies to me, certainly. But here's the rule. Here's the equation. Time plus opportunity equals trouble. Can you say it with me? Time plus opportunity equals trouble. If you're spending time with a person of the opposite sex, just make sure there's no opportunity. Natalie's boyfriends could spend as much time with her as they wanted, just as long as it was with me in the living room watching football. If there's lots of time, then you need to eliminate any opportunity for hanky-panky. And if there's opportunity, you better make it brief. Don't give it any time. For where there is both time and opportunity... I don't care how strong a Christian you say you are. Leave Franklin Graham and Beth Moore in a room long enough and there will eventually be trouble. (laughs) Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't let him even get a foot in the door. Preserve your integrity, your purity at all costs. Uh, Recall the story of Joseph. He was a young man. Oh, he was a handsome man. He was the chief assistant for the Egyptian official named Potiphar. Joseph's job required him to work out of an office in Potiphar's house. And it was there that he caught the eye of a desperate housewife. One day, Mrs. Potiphar cleared out all the staff. No one was home. Nobody but Joseph. She was wearing an item she had bought out of one of those Victoria's Secret catalogs. When all of a sudden she dropped her bathrobe right in front of him. Nobody was home. Who would ever know? She grabbed Joseph. She she started undressing him. Joseph's pulse was racing. You better believe his hormones were surging. She invited him. Lie with me. And what did Joseph do? Genesis 39 tells us. He left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. He didn't let her down gently. He wasn't concerned for her feelings. For the sake of God's reputation and his own integrity, he needed to get out of Dodge as quick as he could. He tucked tail and ran. When temptation makes a pass at you, recall Paul's words. Recall Joseph's example. Flee sexual immorality. Which brings us to the final slogan that the Corinthians were using to justify their immorality. Paul writes in verse 18, Every sin that a man does is outside the body. Here's a modern way to say it. How can it be wrong if we're not hurting anybody? As if only sins are acts that cause physical harm to another person. 
See, when the Corinthians spouted every sin that a man does is outside the body, they were in essence saying, oh, God doesn't mind when we hook up for sex. It's just a fling. We're just letting off some steam. No big deal. If everyone involved was a consenting adult, the Corinthians didn't even consider it a sin. A real sin was stealing a late model chariot somewhere, mugging a person out in the park and taking their wallet. Certainly not sex. There are serial fornicators who go from sexual conquest to sexual conquest. There are homosexuals who come out of the closet and declare their gay pride. And because the consequences of their choices seem only to impact themselves, no one is willing to call it sin. Instead, it's the American way. That's what we label it. As long as my rights don't infringe on your rights, we're all free to be. We take God's verdict out of the equation. See, we really are sexual atheists. No one values God's wisdom, His perspective. How can a victimless crime be a sin? In fact, I've even heard people try to justify their sin with statements like, Oh, uh, when we were together, I've never felt closer to God. Or I've never been this spiritually alive before. I feel such peace in my heart. I've even heard people refer to their sexual immorality as God's will. We pray with each other. How could it be bad? Hey, God put us together. No, God did it. An immoral relationship is not God's will, and to say so is blasphemy. Notice how Paul defines sin in verse 18. He says, Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Some sins are outside the body. But sexual sin is against your own soul. It's ultimately spiritual suicide. It's the slow deterioration of dignity and self-worth. See, the truth is, sexual sin is a crime against many people. The partner in the liaison, their family... If they're single, their future spouse. If you're a Christian, it's a sin against the church and the cause of Christ. Society as a whole, ultimately God himself. But Paul says that sexual immorality is also a sin against your own body. Even a single person who's gotten involved in pornography, the quintessential victimless crime, can't say he or she isn't hurting anybody. Even if you ignore the people producing the porn, you're still hurting yourself and scarring your own psyche. A person's identity is tied to their sexuality. Maleness and femaleness is a part of it, but it goes much deeper. Our capacity to reproduce ourselves is bound up in our sexuality. The sexual side of us represents who we are. That's not true of other bodily functions. What I do with my stomach sustains me, but it has nothing to do with me multiplying my likeness or perpetuating myself. That's why you can watch me eat, and though you might get disgusted and think it's kind of weird, it really has no lasting impact on either of us. But if you saw me naked, we'd both blush. We'd be embarrassed among other emotions. 
Hey, it would definitely creep you out and scar you for a long time. But we'd all agree that sexuality is a bigger deal than just eating, wouldn't we? This is why every time you, you're intimate with someone else, you give away a part of yourself to that person. You break off a chunk of yourself that you can never get back. As Paul would put it, you share your spirit with that person. And when you give yourself away with no guarantees of high return, it only cheapens and degrades you. This is one reason why Paul says that sexual sin is a sin against your own body. Allow yourself to be used as someone else's pacifier or plaything over and over rather than be valued as a person. And it devastates your dignity. It eats away at your sense of self-worth. No wonder we have a whole generation today of people who struggle with a lack of self-esteem. Illicit sex produces some enjoyment, some excitement perhaps, but it doesn't provide enrichment. That's why God created sex. Its purpose is to enrich marital love and those involved in it. I like what Warren Wearsby writes. Sex outside of marriage is like a man robbing a bank. He gets something, but it is not his, and he will one day pay for it. Sex within marriage can be like a person putting money into a bank. There is safety, security, and he will collect dividends. In other words, sexual immorality is a ripoff, whereas sex in marriage is an investment. Verse 19 tells us, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Paul has already asserted that your body is not your body. If you're a Christian, your body belongs to Jesus. We are His members. Isn't it ironic that our world today says just the opposite? It's my body and none of your business. Or you'll see this. It's my body, my choice. But it's neither. Here Paul tells us we are not our own. In closing, Paul gives two reasons why our body is not our own. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? The, Holy, the Old Testament temple was God's dwelling place on the earth. It was His holy habitation. The temple was God's house. And you today are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple in the Old Testament had but one owner. And everything that went in on in and around the temple had but one purpose. That was to bring honor and glory and pleasure to God. Read the Old Testament. What infuriated God most, what brought down His wrath, was when His people brought idols into the temple courts. And this is what happens when we commit sexual immorality and sin against our bodies. We bring idols into the temple where God Himself dwells, which is you, your body. And there's a second reason your body is not your own. Verse 20, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this is Paul's strongest argument for sexual purity. Your body is not your own because it was purchased at a very high price. 
by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you want the price God paid to go to waste? Realize His blood was spilt not just to pay the debt of your sin. I heard people say this all the time. Jesus died for my sins. Not really. I know what you mean by that, but Jesus doesn't want your sins. He didn't die for your sins. He died to pardon your sins so He could have a relationship with you. What He wants is you. This morning, I want us to take communion. And I want us to remind ourselves 